side, with the valley in between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him, and he stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up in battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Now David was the son of an Ephraite of Bethlehem in Judah named Jesse, who had eight sons. And the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. Three oldest sons of Jesse followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Elib, the firstborn, and next to him, Abinadab, and third, Shaman. But David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep in Bethlehem. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward and took stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, Take for your brothers this ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring back some token of them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah, fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took provisions, and went as Jesse had commanded. And he went to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge with the keeper of the baggage, 
and ran out to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. And as he talked to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before. And David heard him. All the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the man, the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way. So it shall be done to this man who kills him. Now Eliab, the eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil in your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What I have done now, was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward the other and spoke in the same way. And the people answered him again as before. Then the words that David spoke were heard. They repeated them before Saul. And he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against the Philistine to fight him, for you are but a youth, he, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear, and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defiled the defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who hath delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. Then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put the helmet of bronze on his head, and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped his sword over his armor, 
And he tried in vain to go, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. And then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from a brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give, you, give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and a spear, with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you unto my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. When the Philistine arose, he came and drew near and met David. And David quickly ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put in his hand, in his bag, and took out one stone and slung it and struck the Philistine in the forehead. The stone sank into the forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in David's in the hand of David. Then David ran and took stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout, and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath, to the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sharem as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, and he put his armor in his tent. And as soon as Saul saw David go out 
against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, Whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. That was a long reading. Let's pray. Father, you know this is a familiar passage to most of us, but undoubtedly you have hidden treasures here this morning. And so I pray that you help us to see them, give us eyes of faith to uncover glories here, and that may they enter into our hearts and spring out of them, even like rivers of living water. So give us your wisdom and guidance of your spirit as we consider your word now, I ask in Jesus' name, amen. The people of Israel have demanded a king because they wanted to be like all of the other nations around them with a king who would go before them in battle. That's what they said back in chapter 8. And in Saul, God had allowed this king for them. He had given them this king. And the Israelites were impressed by Saul because Saul was an impressive man. He was taller than everyone else in Israel and more handsome than everyone else in Israel. He was impressive. And yet, Saul consistently submitted to the demands of the people and to his own rash impulses rather than obeying the word of the Lord. So as a result, the Lord had rejected Saul as king. This was not God's man. God would raise up another king, a man after his own heart. And last week, we followed the prophet who was being led by God as he traveled down to Bethlehem into this unknown territory to find this new king, an unknown, a son of an unknown man named Jesse. And in the secret ceremony, Samuel anoints the most unlikely of candidates, Jesse's youngest son, who's still a boy, David. And we finally learn the name of God's king. Today we're going to see this anointed king confront the rejected king and deliver Israel and glorify Yahweh, but all these things through a very long and deliberate story, which we have had the pleasure of just hearing. And this story, as it progresses, is very carefully building tension until a climactic moment, and then suddenly it resolves with a giant face down in the dirt, and it's over. Every step forward in the slow and deliberate story is sharpening the theological focus of this passage. So as what I want to do this morning is I'm going to progress through the building tension of the passage, and I want to see how the tension is building, and then I want to show you what is the theological focus of chapter 17. And then finally, how does all of this David and Goliath business relate to us today? 
Verses 1 through 3 describe for us the setting in such a way that begins to build the tension of the narrative. You see, the highlands under Israelite control was resource poor. Conversely, the low plains out towards the Mediterranean where the Philistines ruled, this was fertile and rich ground. And so the two nations bordering right up against each other were in constant conflict. And additionally, it was the mandate of Israel to conquer the land and to push the Philistines out of it. So they're in, they come to meet each other at a major geographic intersection, this valley that's about 12 miles west of Bethlehem, the Valley of Elah. And the first three verses are building tension because it's presenting the Israelites and the Philistines in a stalemate. They're unable to defeat one another. They stand on their respective sides of the valley. You can see here the valley cutting through it. They stand opposing one another, facing one another, neither one having the strength to overcome the other, neither side believing that they can act actually win, they're equally matched. They are equally matched. But the Philistines possess this secret weapon, a giant. Look at this in verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. So Goliath is called a champion. This means he is battle-hardened. This man is a warrior. He's been very successful in warrior. He's been very successful in war. They say the most dangerous man on the battlefield is the oldest one because he's lived long enough to kill everybody else who's tried. This man is an imposing figure. The Philistines and Israelites have been battling for years, as I've just implied, and so it's likely that every single Israelite soldier knew Goliath of Gath. They were terrified of him. Likely in your Bible, as this is in mine, it says that Goliath was six cubits tall. This makes Goliath over nine feet tall. The Dead Sea Scrolls and a number of other manuscripts and ancient writings put Goliath at a more realistic four cubits and a span. That would have been um, nearly seven feet tall, which is still enormous compared to the average size of the, uh, of the people in Palestine or Canaan, Canaan in that time, which was about five and a half feet tall. So five and a half feet to about seven feet is an incredible difference. But regardless of his height, Goliath is huge. His great armor weighed about 100 pounds. His spearhead was roughly 13 pounds. Could you imagine taking a spear with 13 pounds on the end and trying to hurl it across a battlefield? And then his shield is so large that it has to be carried by a separate person. So not only is Goliath this hulking mass of a man, but he's also outfitted by the latest military technology. Who in all Israel could face such a man? He stood, in verse 8, and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. 
Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. The giant's speech is the first speech in a series of speeches that are the center of the progression of the story. Notice how Goliath calls the Israelites the servants of Saul rather than the servants of Yahweh. Goliath, in in so doing, he's implying that I'm a servant of no one. I'm a Philistine. You're the servants of Saul. Or you're the slaves of Saul. Isn't that what God had said in chapter 8, that they would become the slaves of their king? And here they are, slaves of their king. Verse 18 is informing us that Goliath's verbal assault happened twice a day. It was a a daily routine, morning and evening, for 40 days. Now, like so many other places in the Bible, 40 days is a symbolic number, symbolizing trial and hardship. It may have been 40 days. It may not have been 40 days exactly, but it is a time of trial and hardship for For this period of time, for these 40 days, Goliath is waging psychological warfare aimed with precision at the Israelite king, and it works. Remember, backing up a little bit, Saul was a head taller than all the other Israelites. He was now a proven warrior as well. He's been victorious in a number of northern battles against all kinds of different people groups. And remember, the exact words that the Israelites said when they demanded a king. These are their exact words. There shall be a king over us, that we, may, that we also may be like the nations, and that our king may go out before us and fight our battles. But now facing Goliath, Saul's height is dwarfed by the giant's hawk, and Saul finds no courage whatsoever to go out and face this giant because Goliath is too great a foe, and Saul knows it, and he is utterly dismayed and afraid. Some king. Goliath's entire speech is meant to communicate to us, the readers, that Saul is an utter failure as a king. He's gripped by the fear of man, a fear that has now metastasized and crippled the entire Israelite camp, and none of them dare go out in battle. As for the king, so it is with the people. They are truly the slaves of Saul. And then, in verse 12, there appears this secretly anointed one, one after God's own heart, David, the shepherd boy, the youngest of the sons of Jesse. So David's three older brothers are, are in Saul's army. And they're out at the front lines. And verse 15 tells us that David had been making a few trips back and forth from Bethlehem to the Valley of Elah, bringing his brother's provisions at his father's behest. And, and yet it appears that it's been a little while since his last trip because his father doesn't know what's going on out there. He wants news. So Jesse, concerned for his sons, sends David yet again. And in perfect obedience to his father, David gathers his father's provisions to take them to his brothers in the valley of battle. He's obedient to his father. And it just so happens 
by no coincidence at all, that when David arrives, he arrives in the middle of this unfolding drama. Verse 21 says, David comes into Saul's camp just as the Israelites and the Philistines are taking their morning stand against each other. I guess this happened every morning. They draw up against one another on either side of the valley with their armor and their weapons gleaming in the morning sun. But because neither side was strong enough to dominate the other, once again, as was tradition, I could just I get this picture of there's the Philistines across the valley and they suddenly part. And out comes this giant man through their ranks, standing in front of them, this dominating figure. And then he shouts, he hurls his abuse at the Israelites. David, it says that once he sees the ranks lining up, he runs out to the front lines and he sees giant come out. He sees the giant come out and he hears his abuse. He watches it all happen. And then he watches the Israelite army run away. And to his shock, he hears of the camp's infection of cowardice from all of these fleeing soldiers. And there's a king. He's hiding in the tent. He's doing nothing except offering his daughter and riches and freedom. The soldiers do nothing also. All they do is run away, too afraid to face this foe. But unlike the fearful king, David is defiant, he is impassioned, he is fearless, and he has already walked 12 miles that morning. He delivers a speech that begins to shift the entire narrative. Look at verse 26. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? David has seen what no one else in the entire Israelite camp has been able to see. Most profoundly, he sees that this is not the army of Israel. This is not the army of Saul. This is the army of the living God, and they should not be afraid. What do they fear? Goliath stands in opposition to God. So very intentionally, God enters the narrative through David's mouth. David is the one who brings Yahweh into this picture. The second thing that David sees is that Goliath is one of the uncircumcised. Goliath boasted that he's a Philistine, and David is saying he's a Philistine. He's uncircumcised. He's not in covenantal relationship with God. He's effectively saying God is not on the side of the Philistines. He's on our side, and if God is for us, then who can be against us? Not this giant. You see, so far, all of Israel and Israel's king has been effectively acting as materialistic atheists. They're not crying out to God. They're not seeking he who commands the host of heaven. Instead, they're relying on their own strength and their own weapons technology and their own armor and the king that isn't so tall anymore. And yet, 
all the Israelites are able to win for themselves is fear and failure. David has no concern whatsoever for the powers or the lack thereof of Israel's army. He looks to God. He is unique in Israel's camp. David sees with the eyes of faith and thus he speaks. And then there's David's oldest brother, Eliab. He hears all this. He hears what his little brother is saying. And he's immediately incensed. He's, he's upset with his brother and he tells David he should be You should be back in Bethlehem tending to the sheep. You have no business here with us men, with us warriors. Eliab is nothing but resentment and disregard for David. And how clearly this vindicates God. We saw just last week, looked into the heart of Eliab and rejected him as king. And so David moves on from his brother, who doesn't want to hear it. And he delivers the same God-centric speech to other soldiers. He's just going through the ranks of Israel, speaking about who God is and who this Philistine is and that they need not be afraid. The boy is an evangelist. And then Saul catches word of some kid making these zealous speeches in camp and likely he's thinking that the such youthful, naive speeches probably shouldn't be delivered to Israel. That's just going to get people killed. But I think he's also a bit curious. Who is this kid that's so on fire for God? So he summons David. And we get the very first dialogue in the Bible between the anointed king and the rejected king. The first of many. And it is the anointed king, the boy, who speaks first. Look at this in verse uh, 32. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him, the giant. Your Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and I struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears. And this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them. For he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. I love that speech. The first words that David speaks to Saul are words of salvation, words of deliverance. And he is entirely humble about it. He calls himself the servant of Saul, which is astounding. And yet David is overflowing with his confident bravery. He's saying that he will go and he he will fight with this Philistine. Can you imagine hearing that? Some teenager came in and said this? Are you kidding me? And he speaks rather dismissively of Goliath, this Philistine. Now, on the other hand, 
Saul believes in what he knows and what he can see and what he can touch. A battle-tested giant is not going to be slain by youthful bluster. Saul has been defeated by Goliath's psychological attacks. The giant has beaten Saul. But this boy, there's more than, meet, there's more than meets the eye to him. He has slain a lion. He has slain a bear. Which I would say are probably more fearsome foes than any giant. Boy, do you know any teenagers today that have done things like this? Slain giants, slain bears. Just have a hard time slaying their phone. But David has not defeated these beasts all on his own. The Lord has delivered them. Will deliver me from the hand of the Philistine. Yahweh did it. Yahweh will do it. He has proven it. He will do it again. Great is his faithfulness. Yahweh is God's covenant name. That's so important for us to know when we read the Bible. Yahweh is the covenant name of God. So David is calling on that covenant when he uses this name. He's essentially saying, the same way the God of covenant has delivered me in the past, he will deliver me on this day in unwavering, it is is an unwavering declaration of faith that this young man has. He looks beyond what can be seen to what is not seen, to what has been promised. Where the God of covenant promised Israel in Exodus 14, 14, that he himself will fight Israel's battles. Commentator David Firth writes this. What Saul could not recognize, David makes clear. Victory for Israel does not lie in the finest military technology or in the greatest physical strength. Victory comes when the nations remember Yahweh's presence. Such faith has not been found in all Israel until this day. And only after David's speech, so filled with faith and passion as it is, does Saul remember Yahweh. See him say, go, and Yahweh be with you. He uses the covenant name. But it seems to me that Saul only takes up Yahweh's name out of religious etiquette. He doesn't want to sound like he's totally irreligious. It's like when people find out I'm a pastor and then all of a sudden they become Christians. I think it's sort of like that. Still, relying on earthly tactics, in verse 38, Saul attempts to fit David with his own armor. It shows that Saul is is intrigued by this young man. Like, maybe there's some hope beginning to stir in him. And so he offers his own armor, which would have been quite an honor. Now, Sunday school stories tell us that The armor was too big for David, but you'll notice that there's nothing that indicates that in the text. That's pure imagination. In fact, if Saul had been trying to fit somebody with armor that didn't fit, he would have been an idiot. And and the people around him would have said, no, Saul, uh, that's a bad move. So what I think is actually implied is that David is quite tall tall enough to fit into the armor of a tall man. And I know that I have met 15, 16, 17-year-olds that are taller than me. 
which would have been about David's age. In verse 39, David rejects Saul's armor on the basis that he just had no time to test it. And I think what's being said here is it, it's constricting. He doesn't feel like he can move naturally in it. And if, he, if he's not used to all of this, how's he going to go out into battle? So he casts it off. Do you know what distinction this draws? All the other kings in all of Canaan and all of the land would have been land would have been suited with armor. But this anointed king needs no armor. He is not like all the other kings. Israel wanted to be like all the other nations to have that king. David is a king unlike all the other nations. All he takes is his trusty shepherd's staff, gathers a few river stones from the stream that runs through the valley, and he goes out to meet the giant. Yahweh will be his protection and his weapon. Not these earthly advanced implements of war. He doesn't need them. David had originally heard Goliath's taunt in the morning. So now, provided it's the same day, it's evening. It's the evening time for taunt. So he heads into the valley during the Philistines' nightly abuse. After 40 verses... The narrative draws to its climax. And it suddenly shifts to the perspective of Goliath. We're now looking through Goliath's eyes. And for the first time, the giant sees somebody approaching him from out of Israel's ranks. An unarmed, inexperienced teenager. And he has a stick. And he has a sling. Are you kidding me? He doesn't look like a fighter. He's a pretty boy. It says he was handsome and ruddy. And so he's filled with arrogance, with contempt, and he hurls his insults at the boy. Look at this in verse 43. And the Philistine, Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The, the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. There's some thick irony in those words. Goliath curses David by his Canaanite gods, gods that do not exist, and he does not realize that he, he has fallen under the curse of the living God. It's his massive flesh that will soon be carried on in the field. Yahweh will see to it. By faith, David knows that. He isn't intimidated even in the slightest. Let's look at the speech continue. Verse 45, then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my, into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give it into our hand. Do you not love the conviction of David? Man. There's not a shred of arrogance in his words either. With all that confidence, he is not self-assured. His assurance comes from the name 
the name of the covenant, the God of the armies of Israel, the true king, Yahweh, and he will not be defied. And when David strikes Goliath down, then all the earth will know. This is what he says. All the earth will know that there is a God in Israel, the true and living God. The grasp that this teenager has on the situation is so much higher than anyone else in Israel, than Israel's king. David's goal is not to kill the giant. It's not even to deliver Israel. David's goal is to glorify God in all the earth. That right there is the theological center and the main point of the story of David and Goliath. To glorify God in all the earth. Indeed, this is a man after God's own heart. A heart that he would later express in a song, in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. David knows, like Saul never did, that Israel exists as a witness to the nations of the glory and the power and the presence of Yahweh. So not only does David want to glorify God to the nations, he also wants Israel to be called up into this great purpose of proclaiming the realities of God to the nations like a kingdom of priests unto God, which was their purpose. And then comes the moment that all this building, that all of this has been building towards After David's final evangelistic speech, it's time for action. David charges Goliath like lightning. The glory of God flashes forth from his sling and the giant falls. The boy has killed him. So great is Yahweh's power that his foe is slain before they can even fight. So much build over in an instant. And then, just as David said in his speech, he takes Goliath's own sword and he beheads this cursed Philistine. The rest of the Philistines flee in panic. Imagine that shield bearer standing right there. Did he freeze as Goliath fell down and then just watch as the head is severed? They all flee. The Philistines flee. They run for their lives. I guess Goliath's words were just words because the Philistines don't then submit themselves to the Israelites and become their servants. And then Israel routs the enemy, chases them down, slaughters them on the way, plunders their camp. Verse 54 says that David takes Goliath's head to Jerusalem. Now remember, Jerusalem is not yet Jerusalem. At this time, Jerusalem was Governed by the Jebusites, it is a city called Jebus. So, verse 54 can be interpreted in one of two ways. One, perhaps David took Goliath's head to Jerusalem years later as a token. Or two, and I like this one, David took Goliath's head to Jebus as a warning. I'm coming here next. 
when David becomes king, he will take Jerusalem. Either way, David's defeat of Goliath proclaims to the Israelites, to the Philistines, to the Jebusites, and to 21st century Americans that the God of Israel is the true and living God. Before all Israel, before Saul, David has proven himself. Even after Saul brings him into his tent afterwards for questioning, Saul has no idea that he's speaking to his replacement. He has no idea that this is the true king of Israel. And the narrative ends. It just abruptly ends with David and Saul still seeming like strangers from one another, as if there's this unseen barrier between the two of them. And very soon, even in the next chapter, this will grow into bitter jealousy festering within Saul towards David. This story of David and Goliath has been a favorite of God's people ever since that day it happened. It's been told and retold, and you probably have heard it in Sunday school class if you grew up in the church. But sadly, in our modern and egocentric age, we have made this story all about us. How can we slay the giants of our lives? How can we overcome obstacles that appear too great for us? How can we be David? If we make ourselves the focus of the story, we miss the story. We neuter it. This is not about you. This is not ultimately about David. This is about the mightiest anointed king who slays foes far more terrible than giants and who has already won the final victory. Every bit of this story is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. We are the trembling Israelites, powerless to defeat our enemy. And what is our great enemy? Sin, Satan, a godless world, these are our enemies, but these are just the Philistines standing behind the giant. The enormous, unbeatable, hulking enemy which we all face is eternal death, the unending expression of the wrath of God. None of us can face this foe. And out of other, a man after God's own heart, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom of God. Before death could even strike, Jesus slew it in a flash of glory, not emanating from a flung stone, but from a stone that had been rolled away. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is is death's death. He rose in victory. And now... Who are we? What do we do? Well, just as the Israelites were enlivened by David's victory and they they routed the Philistines and they plundered their camp, Christ's victory is our call to action to shake us out of our fearful hiding, to join him in the battle, to plunder the forces of darkness. How? We bring sin into submission. 
We break the strongholds of Satan and we proclaim the gospel to this dying world. Listen, even though Christ has slain the giant, the fight to chase down all the rest of the enemies is a difficult one and a real one and there will still be suffering and there will still be disappointment and sometimes it may seem that the skirmish you are engaged in is a losing one. It's when we begin to rely on things of this world where we start to fall, where fear creeps in, where we forget that we are the people of covenant. But you cannot forget. You must, by faith, never forget that Christ has defeated our foe. You have not been defeated, and you will not die. Yahweh is with us. The sword of the Spirit is in our hand. And if God is for us, then who can be against us? Nothing in all creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so again, I say, let us bring sin into submission. Let us break down the strongholds of Satan and proclaim the gospel all over this planet. Just as Yahweh used human agents to transform the circumstances of the promised land in 1 Samuel 17, so he is using human, human agents to transform the circumstances of the whole planet. It might not look like it right now, but neither did it look like it when a massive giant shouted down the Israelite army. Oh, Father, may we have courage, be bold, not because of some victory that we will go out and accomplish, but because of your victory. Because you have overcome every foe. Because you have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And because you promise that you will be with us even to the end of the age. So fill our fearful hearts with courage. Take our anxieties that we might rely on you. Help us more and more to see beyond what is seen. Christ crucified, resurrected, and reigning. Our hope, our glory, and our strength. We praise you, Father, that we see these glories through the shadows of David. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Well, being the first of the month this morning, we will participate in the Lord's Supper in just a few